past nine weeks, I have gone to the pulpit on Sunday evenings and said, I am fortunate to introduce, and I looked on the front pew tonight, and Paul was the only person up here, so I don't guess I'm going to have anybody to introduce, and I'm just going to have to preach tonight. Uh, seriously, I am thrilled to have the opportunity to be back in the pulpit on Sunday evenings, and I'm excited about the series of lessons that we'll be studying for the month of August on Sunday evenings. We're going to be studying about the prophet Jonah, and as you think about Jonah, the young people are intrigued by the account of Jonah. Whenever I'm planning lessons, sometimes I'm sitting down and I'm trying to think who is in the congregation, what they need to hear, and occasionally some of the parents of our young people will come out and say, you mentioned this or you mentioned that, and our kids have not talked about anything but this Bible character, that Bible character all afternoon. And I thought Jonah would be a wonderful prophet to study because young people remember Jonah. They remember the story of the great fish and how important that was in God's plan. But you know, the truth is, some people find the story so incredible that they take the account of Jonah and want to allegorize it. You know, those who do not believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, and any time they encounter a miracle or something supernatural in the Bible, they want to explain it away and say that really did not happen. They want to say that this is nothing more than representative of Israel's hatred of their neighbors. But, oh, there's so much more to be understood. And when I come to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, but he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed one greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a real man. Jonah was a real prophet who preached to a real people in the city of Nineveh. But the account, in my judgment, has some powerful lessons that we as Christians need to learn. Yes, we're going to go through this in an expository sermon type way. We're going to look at the verses. We're going to look at the text. But after we finish studying these chapters, what we are going to do is look for applications, how that these things apply to us and what we may learn from them. And I already know that there will be lessons that we will skip, things that we'll not be able to cover in order to be able to fit it within the time frame. And so in this letter, we will consider what one writer called a despicable deserter, a man who ran away from God's call and God's commission. There are going to be four things we will look at in the text. Verses 1 and 2, the call and the commission of Jonah. Here's the job you've got, Jonah. I want you to do it. Verse 3, we'll look at his contrariness. And then we'll look at the consequences of his refusal to obey in verses 4 through 11. 
And then in verses 12 through 17, we will look at God's chastening of him. Let's begin now, first of all, with a call in verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. You see, God gave him a charge. He gave him a commission. He called him and he said, this is what I want you to do. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jonah was a real person, but I think it's important to understand that he was a prophet not only on this occasion. Sometimes prophets were called for a particular purpose, and it appears that that was the main part of their work. But if you go to 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, he, that is Jeroboam the son of Joash, and that's the, the he there, restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of Arba. According to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now, um, Jonah was a real prophet. He prophesied not only to people of a foreign nation as he was sent, but he prophesied to his own people. Being a prophet means that he knew what it was to receive a message from God and to deliver that message. You know, sometimes when I'm reading the book of the Bible, I'll read through and I'll read about a person and I may think, well, he's just an ordinary man. You may, in thinking about Jonah, you may think, well, here's Jonah, a man who's maybe, for instance, working as a, a common laborer and being a shepherd, a tender of sycamore trees like Amos was. But Jonah was a man who had the, the job of being a prophet. And so he knew what he was doing and what God was calling him to do. God had given him a specific mission. Go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. In fact, it's not going to be long before this nation, of which Nineveh is the capital, will end up taking the northern kingdom captive in 722 B.C. As the capital of the Assyrian Empire, it was... As God said, that great city, the estimate is that there were 600,000 people who lived in the city of Nineveh at this time. For Jonah to go and to turn that city upside down meant that he did a great job. Let me tell you a little bit about the people of Nineveh and why God found it necessary. They were a people known for their cruelty Historical records records that they would decapitate the kings that they would conquer. They would take and put their heads up on a pole so that people could look by and see the head of a conquered king and know that they had the power. They would also flay the generals. And if you don't know what flaying means, if you're from Alabama, it means you skin them alive. They would skin them alive while they were screaming and crying in pain. They were cruel people. And then after they had skinned them alive and they had died in excruciating pain, they would cut off the various parts of their bodies, a hand or a foot, and they would give them as souvenirs to the generals in their own army. Very cruel people. When you get to chapter 3 in the latter part of verse 8, he says, but let me, the, the king says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth 
and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. I want you to think of these people, how cruel they were, how wicked they were. And so God has sent Jonah on this mission. But when you get to verse 3, you find out that Jonah is contrary. That's a word that was used a lot when I was a teenager. We'd say, this, that guy, he's just plain old contrary. That means he doesn't want to do what he's supposed to do. Teacher is going to tell him to sit down, he's going to stand up. Someone tells him to go out, he's going to stay in. Tells him to stay here, he'll go. He's just plain old contrary. Listen to verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was fleeing the task assigned him by God. Or as I put it as the title of this lesson, Jonah shirked his responsibility that God had assigned him. In fact, he went in the opposite direction from Gath Heifer where he was located to go the direction God sent him was to go to the north and to go to the east. However, to go to Joppa meant that he had to go to the south and go to the west and to go to Tarshish, most archaeologists now and uh, scholars believe that Tarshish is the area of Gibraltar. In fact, I've got a map that I can put on the screen. and You see where Joppa would have been, and off the map to the right would be Nineveh in the area of Mosul. If you want to know where Nineveh's at, Mosul, Turkey is where Nineveh was at. Or no, Mosul, Iraq, I'm sorry, instead of Mosul, Turkey. Mosul, Iraq. But if you'll see, Tarshish is all the way over near the edge of where the Mediterranean Sea pours out into the Atlantic Ocean. You'll understand that he's trying to go as far away as he can from God. He had a bad view of God. He thought God was provincial, that he could somehow go far enough and God wouldn't find him. One of the writers that I read named John MacArthur said that he was a racist with a rotten attitude. I know those terms sound pretty harsh. But I want you to listen to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. When God pardoned and spared the Ninevites, Jonah pitched a fit. But I want you to notice verse 2. He says, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Evidently, when God told Jonah to go, Jonah's contrariness said, God, I don't want to go. Because if I go and I preach, they might respond. And if they respond, you'll forgive them. 
his motivation was rotten. He didn't love these people, didn't care about these people. And the reason why, he was a racist. He believed that the Ninevites were unworthy of being saved and did not want God to do that. Now, very quickly, let's look at verses 4 through 11 and the consequences from Jonah's contrariness. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. They said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sin, sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. Now God sent a horrific storm. I want you to visualize in your mind how horrific this storm must have been. You know, there's been times when storms have passed through on our dry land. The trees are blown up by their roots. People lose the roofs of their houses. In fact, we've had some that's come through our area and done a tremendous amount of damage. But can you imagine being on the water as you see this ship tossed to and fro Back March of last year, a group of us were on a ship going from Patmos to Crete. And the waves became so high that as we were sleeping at night, you would levitate out of your bed because of the waves. They had a swimming pool on the deck of the ship, and all the water sloshed out of the swimming pool because the ship was moving so vigorously. And it wasn't even coming a storm. That was waves of that time of year. These mariners here, it says, are frightened. You know, if you're looking about, those of us who are not normally riding on ships may become scared, but when the mariners become scared, that's the time to really be afraid. Not only were they afraid, they began to throw the freight overboard, the cargo. Ships would transport grain, all kinds of goods, Many times they were extremely valuable, but if it comes down to choice between your life or the cargo, you throw the cargo over. They wanted to lighten the ship so that 
whatever water might not spill over the top of it and sink the ship. They began to pray fervently. Every mariner, every sailor prayed to his own God. It was all hope was lost. The ship was going to sink. As they awoken Jonah, they began to follow up questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What is your occupation? What is your God? Why is this happening to us? And Jonah has to say, it's because I'm running away from God. The truth is, you can't do that. You can't run away from God. Psalm 139, beginning with verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall take hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall around me, even the night is light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, and the darkness of the light, the light, darkness and light are both alike to you. You can't get away from God. You can't go down into the very heart of a ship that's going a long way away and think that you can escape from God. And so what does God do? God chastens him. Look with me now at verses 12 through 17. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to the land. But they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The solution was proposed by Jonah. Throw him overboard. He was willing to accept his punishment for the good of those other sailors that were on the board with him. But the sailors didn't want to offend God by killing a prophet. In fact, as they're ready to throw him overboard, they don't want to be charged with innocent blood. You know, if the God of heaven, the God of Jonah, could cause this great storm to come upon the sea, what might he do if you kill one of his prophets? You see, they were fearful of whatever they might do. So they tried hard to row to the land. But God's not going to let that happen. God caused the tempest to come and the sea is becoming more tempestuous as they row. And then God prepared a great fish. Now I know that sometimes translations say a whale. 
But the text says, really, a great fish. And I have read a number of people trying to speculate what type of fish it was that God prepared. What kind of fish is big enough to swallow a man and hold a man in its integral parts for three days and three nights? If God can prepare a storm, God can prepare a fish. And God can prepare a fish that is capable of sustaining man's life. And the truth was, is that the great fish not only was a punishment, a chastisement, but it was also the salvation of Jonah. What if Jonah had been thrown into the water and there were no fish? Nature says that he would have drowned. But the great fish not only picked him up, but it spit him out on dry land. And again, I get amused sometimes in reading commentators as they begin to try to figure out how that he could be spit out on dry land. Was he like a projectile? And did he throw him up so far? Did he throw him out on land? Did the great fish beach itself and Jonah crawl out of its mouth on dry land? I have no problem with the fact that God got him there and the great fish was the means by doing that. But it allowed Jonah also time to think about his refusal of God's commission. God told me to do something. And for three days and three nights, he got to think about that. I like what David said in Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I would venture to say that most of us could say that about our parents. Before I was corrected, before I was disciplined, before I was chastened, I did what I wanted to. Now that I have been, I'm going to do what my parents say to do. Jonah learned that. Now, application time. Christians are under commission to carry the gospel into all the world. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Mark's account, Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. Let me ask you a very sobering question. Are we shirking our responsibility? Are we, like Jonah, trying to run away from our obligation to God and are failing to do it? What are we actually doing to accomplish the Great Commission? I'm serious. What are we actually doing to accomplish the Great Commission? This past week I was reading... uh, an article by a man who's a denominationalist, but it was on why we do not invite people to church. And uh, he gave ten reasons. And I thought, 
somewhere along the line, I'm going to work this in. So I thought, this is perhaps where to work it in. He said, people say, I don't invite people to church because I don't think about it. I'd say that's probably number one. I go about my daily life. I I meet people, but I don't think about saying to them, would you come go to church with us? Number two, I'm afraid I'll be rejected. I know that feeling. Every time we go and knock doors, very first door or two that I go to and start to knock, I'm always like a little bit apprehensive because I'm afraid there's going to be somebody come to the door and say, what you want? And you know what? I've had people come to the door and say, what you want? But most don't do that. Most will come to the door and say, can I help you? Sure, I'd like to invite you to come to service. Okay, thank you. Usually they're very pleasant. Number three, this guy says the music isn't that good. i got to admit, sometimes, folks, our singing does sound as if we have no enthusiasm in it. And sometimes we're fearful to bring people feeling like they're going to hear us sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, and wonder if we really do. Number four, the preaching isn't strong. That's the fault of us preachers. If we're not preaching to where we teach God's Word and we challenge people with it, then that is our problem. Number five, we've got too many church problems right now. If that's true, shame on us. If there's church problems, there's a troublemaker. And troublemakers ought to be dealt with. We ought to find ourselves in peace and harmony so people that we feel comfortable inviting them. Number six, our church is already too crowded. There's some people who believe the church ought to stay just the size it is. They're satisfied with the status quo. They don't think the Lord's church ought to grow. They have this small church mentality. Folks, Can you imagine the apostles on the day of Pentecost saying, okay, we've had 3,000 baptized today. That's enough. Nobody ever challenged me to invite anyone. You can't say that now. You're encouraged to do that. Number eight, I don't know how to start a conversation. You start a conversation just like you do about UT football. Or just like you would about any other subject about which you are interested. Number nine, and this shows this denominational's writer's view. He says, it's Spirit's job, not mine, to bring people to the church. They believe the idea is, is that the Holy Spirit draws men with this some sort of miraculous drawing. And no, that's not what the Great Commission says. It says for those of us who are God's disciples to go and preach the gospel. Number 10, it's too far to come. I haven't met anybody that that's a problem for in our area. Are there some people who we would not want to obey the gospel or be restored? That was Jonah's problem. Let me ask you a question. Search your heart deeply. The people who live in the Middle East who are creating some of the problems today, is it our desire that they just die? Or is it our desire that they may learn the truth? 
the Muslims in this world need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to see it in its truth and its and its simplicity, not as the denominational world has presented it. And sometimes our attitudes that we convey leaves the impression that Jonah did. We don't love their souls and we don't want them to be saved. That we just rather they die. Number two, Christians can't run away from God nor their obligations. It's not obedience when I choose the things that I want to obey that God tells me to do. There's a lot of things that when we hear in God's Word, we say, hey, I like that, I'm going to do that. Then when comes an obligation that we don't want to do, then we say, I don't think I'll do that one. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You see, you don't just choose the ones you like and reject the ones that you don't. Loving our enemies is our obligation. In Matthew or Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36, Jesus says to be like our Father who is kind to the unthankful and the evil and be merciful just as your Heavenly Father is merciful. And some people have to realize the early church put this into practice. The first converts were Jews. And it was Jews who took the gospel to the Gentiles because they were obligated to do so. When Peter went and preached the gospel to the household of Cornelius and he came back from preaching, I want you to listen to Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. And he said to them, saying, You went in with uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter has to straighten this matter out. Verses 17 and 18. If God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. We ought to be the kind of people who look and say, we're grateful for and thrill in people being obedient to the gospel. Lastly, chastening is for our benefit. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. I'm not going to go through all the details, but it makes the point that God chastens us for our benefit, for our own good. What at one point looks like a burden then becomes a blessing. In fact, in those verses that I just skipped, he says, No chastening for the moment seems to be joyful but grievous. Yet afterward it yields a peaceable fruit in those who have been trained by it. We have to realize God's chastening is for our good and nothing will drive a man to his knees quicker than suffering. Isaiah 26, 16, Lord, in Trouble they have visited you. They have poured out their heart or poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. You want to pray fervently? 
You can pray just like Jonah did from the belly of the great fish, from the mist of chastening. In Psalm 119, 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. We have a call and a commission and must not shrink from our obligation. God loves all men and so must we because God desires all to be saved. Only in with 1 Timothy 2.4 who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The fact that God ever wants everybody to be saved means he wants you to be saved. And in our number we have those perhaps at every service, who've not yet obeyed the gospel. God loves you. God wants your soul saved, just like those Ninevites. But you've got to be willing to humble yourself in repentance and being baptized for the remission of your sins. Some of us, as God's children, are failing in our obligations and we need to have a change of heart, just like Jonah. If you need to respond to the call of our Lord, would you come while together we stand and sing?